This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. This is Jeff T from the Club 520 Podcast. When it comes to your feet, eBay's got your back. When you see the blue check mark that says authenticity guaranteed, that means real experts are checking your sneakers. Every stitch down to the sole. They even smell them because nothing says fresh like the scent of real kicks. So kick back and relax. From the drop to your doorstep, eBay doesn't play games with your sneaker game. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal with eBay Authenticity Guarantee. Visit ebay.com for terms. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. This is the Sports Illustrated Boxing Podcast. It's boxing. A look inside boxing with Sports Illustrated's Chris Mannix. Interviews, analysis, and everything going on in boxing. And now a man who I wish was called the Boston Bleeder. All doctors to the ER. It's sort of like getting punched in the face. Chris Chris Mannix. All right, joining me this week on the podcast, he is the Hall of Fame promoter, the founder of Top Rank, and... uh, one of the most knowledgeable guys in this boxing business today, the great Bob Arum. How are you, Bob? Really good. Really good. I mean, you know, these are crazy times, but uh, look, I'm here in L.A. Uh, I got a nice backyard, a swimming pool, so what can be bad? <laughs> That's true. And I see you've got, uh, is this the first time you've grown a beard? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I, You know, I'm a guy who shaved every a day or worst every other day uh and now i'm six weeks into a beard <laughs> how, how are you liking the beard personally I, you know it doesn't bother me it doesn't bother me it sort of gives me something to look at when i get up in the morning <laughs> <laughs> so what does with everything going on what does a day in bob aram's life look like these days well what I, what's happening now you know it changes what's happening now is the morning is spent uh, making calls uh, around the world because I want to find out uh, what the various promoters are doing, uh, whether anybody has ideas as far as opening. I talk to all of my people in the office, all the executives. Uh, What we're doing now, uh, after uh, a lot of uh, conversation, uh, is uh, lining up uh, where we're going to open, how we're going to open, and uh, 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 when. And uh, uh, pretty much uh, we hope to be up and running uh, in June. So I want to get into some of that, Bob, but last week I had Sugar Ray Leonard on for about an hour, and we were just talking about a lot of his great moments in his uh, fighting history, and, and you were part of, well, a few of them, but you were part of one in particular, the first Hagler fight 
Um, I mean, that was an anticipated. The only Hagler fight. The only Hagler fight. You're right. You fought him once. (laughs) You're right. The the Hagler fight. Uh, What what do you remember about making that fight? Because at that point, Ray had been retired for like three years prior to that fight. Well, it was interesting uh, because uh, uh, Marvin never wanted a fight after he fought Tommy Hearns. Marvin uh, saved all his money, uh, and so he was relatively well off because he didn't spend very much money. And so he wanted to retire after Hearns. Somehow, we convinced him, uh, kicking and screaming, to fight John Mugabe. And uh, uh, he took a postponement on that fight. Finally, it happened. It was a tremendous fight because Marvin was, was slipping. And Ray was at ringside, and he saw it. And that's when he decided to come out of retirement. Mm-hmm. And at first, Marvin wanted absolutely nothing to do with fighting Leonard or fighting anybody else. And I remember uh, that uh, I was uh, in Boston meeting with Pat Petronelli, his manager, co-manager with his brother, and uh, Pat's uh, uh, girlfriend, uh, Betty Whitney, and driving uh, all night uh, with, I remember, fog and everything <laughs> to, to, to get to Marvin, who was in uh, uh, New Hampshire. And finally, we reached uh, uh, where Marvin, Marvin's house uh, early one morning, and uh, Pat said, you and Betty sit in the car. Let me go in and talk to him. And so I remember, I'll never forget, there was Pat and Marvin drinking coffee, sitting on an outdoor table uh, in Marvin's backyard. And suddenly Marvin starts uh, banging his, uh, his hand on the table and, you know, really angry. And the meeting with Pat and Marvin broke up about 15 minutes later. And Marvin and and Pat came back to the car. And I said, Pat, what the hell happened? Why did he get so angry? He said, Bob, you'll never believe it. You know, I was convincing him to do the Leonard fight. And he said he didn't want to do it, really. And finally, I said to him, look, uh, uh, Goody, uh, Pat's brother, was the trainer. And I get one-third of Marvin's purse, collectively one-third. We told Marvin he took the fight. We cut it to 15%. And Marvin started pounding the table, yelling, I don't know if I'm going to fight that pussy or not, but if I fight him, you're going to take the one-third. You know? <laughs> I mean, really, Marvin was a, is a, a real character, a, you know, wonderful, wonderful guy. And uh, then we ran into a problem. I was on the outs at that point with Ray's then manager, uh, Mike Trainer, And uh, uh, Trainer said, the only way Ray's going to do the fight is if Top Rank and Bob Arum are not involved. And so Pat and Goody met with Marvin, and they came back and they said, and Pat said, Mike, if Top Rank isn't the promoter, there's no fight. And finally, when Trainer realized they were serious, he said, okay, Top Rank can promote, but he's got to buy us out. So I bought 
Ray out his share for $11 million. And Marvin was fighting on a percentage and ended up making over 19, something that Ray will never forgive me for. But it was his own brilliant manager that caused it. Why were you on the outs with Mike Trainer? I don't remember. Who remembers that? Some <laughs> stupid, crazy reason that made, you know, that makes little sense now. Something to do with uh, uh, Ray, I don't know, some uh, other fight that Ray, uh, that Ray had had. I mean, I, I don't know which one, I don't know why, but Trainer was uh, this, you know, he had complete control pretty much over, over Ray. Uh, and uh, it was very easy to piss Mike off. And this was just the period that he was pissed <laughs> off. I later became really good friends with him and then enemies. You know, Mike was a prickly kind of guy. It always seemed, and this is just me kind of reading from afar, that Marvin felt a particular kind of way about Ray Leonard that you know, going back to like 84 when Leonard fought Kevin Howard, it felt like Marvin thought that he was going to get the Leonard fight then, and it just never materialized when Marvin wanted. Is there any truth to that? Well, it was a class kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, Marvin uh, wasn't an Olympian. Uh, he was uh, an amateur that went into the pros and like all pros then, fought for $50, $100 a fight, uh, how to fight the toughest guys going, found it difficult to get fights because he was so good and he was also a Southpaw. So uh, people didn't want to fight him. And uh, I remember King was doing a middleweight tournament and he said that Marvin could get in if Marvin signed his life away to one of King's contracts and Marvin refused. So he was kept out of it. And, uh, you know, particularly for a lot of his career, Marvin was even off my radar. The only reason I got involved with Marvin is because Senator Ted Kennedy and the Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, sent me letters that arrived the same day saying that if I didn't give Marvin a shot at the middleweight title because I control the middleweight championship at that point, uh, there would be a congressional investigation, <laughs> joint House and Senate, right? So I, I, I wasn't looking for trouble. So I called uh, my friend uh, Rip Valenti, who was the promoter in Boston and had done a lot of uh, closed circuit work for us. And Rip had uh, uh, Pat and Goody come to my office. And that's when we made the deal uh, that I would give... Um, uh, Marvin, a 10-round fight against a very tough Argentine guy named Cabrera on the same card that Vito Antifermo and uh, Coro, Hugo Coro, were fighting for the middleweight title. And if Marvin won that fight, he would fight the winner. And that's what happened. And uh, uh, Marvin then fought Vito Antifermo. Uh, again, his what stuck in Marvin's craw on the undercard of a Sugar Ray Leonard championship fight with Leonard against Benitez for the welterweight championship. So Marvin was the undercard, won that fight clearly with Antifermo, and the judges and 
in Nevada, uh, in their wisdom, called it a draw. Mm. So, and, and then we had a, you know, Marvin stayed with us and we gave him three fights uh, that the networks uh, uh, show the, on uh, three fights in keep busy fights in New England. And finally, we arranged for Marvin to fight Minter, and he had to go to England to fight him. And once he won the title, the, the Brit cascaded us with bottles of beer. <laughs> you know, it was like a war scene. Uh, so, you know, Marvin had it tough. Now, take Sugar Ray Leonard, who was the poster boy of the United States amateurs, uh, he was featured uh, as an Olympic fighter in 1976. He won uh, against a tough Cuban, uh, the Olympic gold medal. Uh, the uh, ABC Olympic did the Olympics then, and Howard Cosell was the commentator, and he went berserk over Leonard. And so Leonard, by his first professional fight was deemed the Prince Charming of boxing. And uh, unlike Marvin, who fought for 50 and $100 in his first fights, uh, Leonard was fighting for 50 and $100,000 in his <laughs> first fights. So there was absolutely nothing to do with Ray. Ray was always has been a splendid uh, guy. He is today. Uh, but there was a great resentment that Marvin had built up, that he had uh, worked uh, so hard in boxing, and Leonard had had his career handed to him uh, with a silver spoon. I, I took that resentment, by the way, in the promotion, and I... Uh, you know, in political terms, because I'm very political, uh, I really, I said, this fight is like the blue collar guy against uh, the yuppie. You know, they had yuppies, you know. And and I caught on, you know. That was a very Trumpian thing for me to do, <laughs> you know, to rally the working class, right? When you didn't particularly, you know, they were fighting for millions of dollars, so it was hardly the working class. But in any event, it caught on. It was a tremendous promotion and a, a, a very interesting fight. Uh, I thought that Marvin had won the fight, uh, uh, but uh, the uh, scorecards went against him. I mean, the, the problem was one judge, uh, Lou Filippo from California, had it uh, seven to five for Marvin. Another judge, uh, Moretti from uh, Vegas, had him seven to five for Ray. And then Suleiman's judge from uh, Mexico, uh, you know, wrote his scorecard out before the fight, <laughs> and he had it 10 rounds to two uh, for Ray. So that really, you know, it, at, at, at best, I thought it was a draw, but I thought really Marvin won that fight. You know, you go back, and by the way, the, the congressional hearing is hilarious. A lot of a lot of potent, a lot of a, a national political power was in Massachusetts around that time, wasn't there? With Tip and with uh, with well, Ted. Kennedy. You know, Ted was not only the senator from Massachusetts, 
but you know the youngest brother of uh, of the f- former president mm. who had been assassinated wildly popular um, uh, Jack Kennedy and mm. the former attorney general who was senator from New York uh, 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 you know so um, uh, I think that uh, uh, Ted Kennedy but more importantly was the Speaker of the House I mean, Tip O'Neill was like a very, very powerful figure in Congress. And God knows if Tip had gotten me into a congressional hearing, I don't know what the (laughs) hell I would say, right? I mean, why didn't Hagler get a shot? Well, I wasn't taking any chances. And because of that, I had a relationship. From then on, I did all of Marvin's fights, all of them. Uh, and uh, had a great relationship, not only with Marvin, uh, but with the Petronellis and uh, with Rip Valenti, the promoter from uh, uh, Boston, who uh, had me eat in the best Italian restaurants that I've (laughs) ever eaten in my life. I remember that on the North End. So it all worked out, but uh, it was, you know, I wasn't arguing with Tip O'Neill or, Ted Kennedy. So you, I mean, being a promoter, you watch a fight like that, you know it's a close fight. I mean, you see how Hagler reacted in the ring. Um, are, are you thinking right away, let's make the rematch? I mean, what, what is your thought process after that fight? Marvin told me after that fight that he had a fill of boxing. So I knew the whole history of Hagler since the Hearns fight. And I knew that there would be no way that I could persuade Marvin otherwise right away because Ray was up for another fight because he would be getting more than 11 million, which was incredible money at the time. I mean, God knows what that fight would have done because it was uh, the still the era of closed circuit boxing, but something was now coming, rearing its head, which was pay-per-view. So as the cable universe was expanding, most of them were equipped to do pay-per-view. So now we were looking at riches beyond anybody's imagination. So it made all the economic sense. But I knew enough when Marvin made his mind up, you don't argue with him. Now, around a year later, I'll never forget, Caesar's Palace was doing an event, uh, was like a tribute to uh, boxing uh, in uh, at Caesar's Palace. And they had Ali there and uh, all... Uh, Leonard and Hearns and Duran and Hagler, everybody was there. We were all dressed in tuxedos. And at one point, while we, you know, in the sitting around before the the dinner, uh, I was standing next to Ray. And Ray looked across the ring. He said, Bob, go over and talk to Marvin and tell him not to be a dope. Let's do the rematch. We'll make a lot of money. And so, of course, I did. I went over and I said, Marvin, I've been talking to Ray. And Ray said, you've got to do the rematch. There's a fortune to be made. 
And Marvin looked at me at the cold way that he could look at somebody. And he says, Bob, tell Ray to get a life. <laughs> and that was the end. And I knew from that point on there would be no rematch. No rematch, but no fights either for Hagler after that. I mean, you've seen so many fighters, Bob, retire, unretire, you know, change their mind years after the fact. What was it about Hagler that, that kept him away? And did it surprise you that he stayed away? No, Marvin Hagler was Marvin Hagler. And once he made up his mind, he was the stubbornest guy. And other than a Great Depression that would wipe out the fortune <laughs> that he had. I mean, Marvin once showed me, I mean, I'll never forget it, a, a what do they call it, passbook that you had from a savings bank. Mm-hmm. It was a savings and loan bank where he had put a purse that he had made in one of his earlier, not earlier, uh, fights, all these tough Philadelphia fights. Uh, and his purse or his end of the purse was like $12,000, a lot of money. And he showed me that passbook. He had not taken out a penny. <laughs> and obviously he went in every year so that he could see the interest building in that account. Marvin was a guy, you know, when Marvin retired, he had a tremendously large nest egg, mm. really, really large Amount. He had the, you know, list of taxes, $19 million from the uh, Leonard fight, uh, I think $10 million from the uh, Hearns fight, you know, $6 million from, I mean, he had money. And he, he, he lived like he was still making a couple of thousand dollars <laughs> a fight. He had to pay, he got divorced uh, from his wife at that point. They, he, he only either had, uh, I don't think he had a, 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 an agreement, a prenuptial mm-hmm. agreement, but he had cost him $3 million, which must have killed him. But everything in his bank account, everything, he not only never touched, but he never touched the interest on the money. Mm-hmm. Never. So that he lived off, uh, uh, particularly in England, they loved him in the UK. And he would go and make speeches and they'd pay him. Now, you know, I love Marvin and he meant a lot to me. And so I would always invite uh, Marvin uh, to a major fight, you know, particularly uh, uh, later on uh, when we were doing uh, fights or, uh, with uh, Foreman and Oscar De La Hoya and uh, Mayweather, and he say, oh, thank you, Bob. He said, but I need two first-class tickets for myself and my wife, which was not unreasonable, and I'd want 10000 20000 30000 to come to the fight. I said, Marvin, I'm happy to buy the t- – I'm not happy, but I'll buy the first-class <laughs> ticket, but I ain't going to pay you to come to the fight. You're not going <laughs> to sell me any ticket. But he wouldn't go any place unless he was paid for it. He was, it's funny, you know, periodically, being based in Boston, I see him at a Celtic game from time to time, always dressed in a very nice suit and and looking like you said, he's got every nickel still still in his bank account. Right, and and, and, and you, I mean, 
Marvin, what is close to 60 now? Mm -hmm. Must be. Yeah. At least, yeah. Probably over. And he looks now, he's in such shape, like he get in the ring tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I mean, the one thing, see, people always made a mistake. Once he retired, particularly when he went to Italy and started making these spaghetti westerns where he's like a big star, <laughs> right? No. I mean, I'll tell you another funny story. But anyway, Marvin uh, was uh, uh, the kind of guy that went to the gym every day and, you know, really worked out and worked hard. Marvin did everything, worked hard. And so people thought, hey, he's going to make a comeback because he's in such great shape. But I knew different, that he wouldn't. But let me tell you a funny story. Mm -hmm. we I was doing a middleweight championship fight. I believe it was a James Tony against Mike McCallum. I believe that it was the fight. I'm not sure. And so I, I, want, I wanted uh, Marvin, a uh, great middleweight champion, to be part of the promotion. So I made a deal with Marvin uh, that uh, he would come in and we do a we're doing a press conference in Boston, and then we're going to do a press conference in New York. And Marvin would, uh, uh, you know, assist and appear at the press conferences. I thought it would be good for the promotion. So now we get to Boston, and Marvin comes in to the press conference in Boston, and he has like a, a, a overcoat over his jacket, like the Italians wear. And he starts talking to me like with a thick Italian accent. I said, Marvin, well, I'm out and spent time. I said, okay. I said, Marvin, uh, tomorrow we're getting on a plane at, you know, take the shuttle from Boston to New York at about 10 o'clock and we do the press conference. And I do not go to the press conference in New York. Because, I mean, talking like an Italian guy, because uh, my bambinos are here. I have to spend time with my bambinos. I looked at him. I said, Marvin, I hired you to help with the promotion, not Vito Antifermo. <laughs> so, I mean, but he never went to New York. Incredible. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Now, I'm supposed to talk here about what I remember and what I loved about my first car. And that's easy for me to do because I still have my first car. And as long as it keeps running, and so far so good, I intend to have that car probably until the day I die. Uh, that's how much I love that car. It is like a child to me. Now, it does require some upkeep, and that's why I'm grateful for a place like eBay Motors. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. 
Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Open a limited time 11 month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus, it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash CB for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. You know, when one of the uh, the consequences, I guess, of, of this pandemic going on is that, you know, a lot of people spend a lot of time inside watching old fights. I mean, I've watched all those fights from the 1980s over the last, you know, couple of weeks. And one thing I noticed, Bob, is, I mean, they were all such big events. And if you go back and you read stories, like Sports Illustrated would write these massive cover stories on all these fights and all these fighters contrast that with with now and the way it's covered i mean when did you see things start to change for boxing and how do you what do you attribute that to well i think things changed things changed when we all got into silos uh when networks uh you know decided uh, a HBO fighter wouldn't appear on Showtime. A Showtime fighter wouldn't appear on HBO. There were, you know, in in the eighties, uh, while certain fighters were loyal to certain promoters, we didn't have contracts. In other words, I never had a contract for more than one, maybe two fights, if I was planning a second fight with Marvin. Everything was fight to fight. Same thing with Ray. And, you know, Ray went, Mike Trainer would make other deals with Ray, with other promoters, with Duran, uh, and with Tommy Hearns, even though I had a great relationship uh, with Emmanuel, who was a close friend of mine. Uh, that changed uh, as we went uh, into past the 90s, when uh, everybody started uh, with these long-term contracts and with the, uh, it was originally the HBO Showtime rivalry. And then uh, that segued into a rivalry between promoters. Uh, first, uh, even when, you know, back in the days, even when King and I were rivals, King would do fights on HBO and also Showtime. I would do fights on HBO and Showtime. But suddenly everybody got into their corners. Top Rank became an HBO supplier. Then uh, Al Heyman with PBC, it wasn't PBC, it was Heyman. When he put Mayweather to Showtime, then Showtime became the haven for Al Heyman, which became PBC. And then later on uh, with the zone with Matchroom, they became an entity. And very rare was it that fighters uh, went from one to the other. I remember when Eddie wanted to do uh, uh, the uh, Ramirez hooker fight on the zone, I had to go to ESPN then, which I was, uh, which I'm pro providing fights to, and uh, get permission which they gave. I think that we're going to see once this 
whole pandemic thing uh, goes away or as we go into the future, uh, a, a different attitude. Because I think what had happened until the pandemic came was the uh, uh, Fury Wilder fight when uh, uh, ESPN and uh, Fox worked together on the promotion, which was seamless. Uh, as contrasted with the Mayweather-Pacquiao fight number of years before, where it was Showtime and HBO, where it was a miserable, horrible experience, although economically was uh, uh, unbelievable. Uh, you know, we all did very well. But again, uh, the uh, uh, partnership uh, in the Wilder Fury fight uh, with uh, Fox and ESPN and PBC and Top Rank uh, everybody worked collegiately to make it the event that it became. So I, I look forward, maybe I'm an optimist, uh, to more cross promotions like that. And I think if we do that and we start, you know, churning out Crawford and Spence and a lot of fighters, uh, you know, that uh, a lot of fights that can be made that the public really wants to see, uh, I think that boxing will revive and be back almost the way it was uh, in the 80s with the four kings. I, I agree with that. I mean, I think the quality of fights drives the coverage, drives the interest, always has, always will. But my one question on that was, you know, you had said prior to Fury Wilder, you hoped for 2 million pay-per-view buys. It did about half that. Um, does that make you, does that make you and by extension ESPN any more or less interested getting into that cross-promotional business because it didn't do the number that you'd hoped for? Well, it's, again, you have to understand, you look at UK, which has a, a, maybe a 25% population of the United States, maybe less. I mean, I think they have 50 or 60 million people in the UK. We have... Uh, 350 million people in the United States. Uh, in the UK, they do, on a big fight, over a million pay-per-view, particularly if it's, you know, prime time in the UK. And one of the reasons for their success is they charge appropriate prices for the pay-per-view. In other words, uh, the pay-per-view goes for 20 or 25 pounds of which the government takes 20% in the VAT. So people can pretty well afford that. In the United States, where we charge 80 or more dollars for a pay-per-view, people can't afford that unless they're going to have big crowds in the house chipping in. And uh, because of the high price, they look for ways uh, to watch the fight without paying, like streams and everything, which, you know, the danger there is, uh, other than breaking the law, which they probably won't get caught, is that uh, the, 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 you, the, these streams get shot down and they miss seeing the fight. So if we charge, go back to charging $40, 
I think you will see a tremendous uh, increase in the number of homes that will buy it. Also, what we saw is because so many uh, people in America have cord cut that uh, DirecTV and Dish have really shrunk and they were, their customers were big buyers. So that universe has shrunk. The cable universe has shrunk because people have cut the cord. Uh, and now I was happy to see in the last fight that uh, ESPN Plus uh, did 250,000 buys on their platform. Yeah? And uh, Fox did about 50 or 60,000 on their platform. So I think as you'll get more people uh, uh, into the digital uh, platforms, you're going to see uh, an increase in the amount of buys, uh, but it has to be realistic numbers. Forget about $80 a home. That is not realistic, particularly now when we open up, let's say we can do a big event, uh, people will be reluctant to open their homes to eight or nine or 10 other couples. And so more and more people will be watching a fight uh, just with their families. So again, nothing is certain. The future is doubtful, but we have to look ahead and figure out how we're going to proceed in the future. I agree with you that reducing the price makes a lot of sense, and you can certainly make up the revenue if more people buy it. But do you have do you think fighters will be willing to take the risk that comes with being one of the first to lower the price, or who would assume the risk in that first kind of trial balloon? There, both the fighters and the promoters. In other words, the fighters would take less of a guarantee and more of the upside. That's the for example, I mean, that's how we did it with Marvin. That's how we did it with uh, De La Hoya. That's how we did it in the past. They take reasonable guarantees and the, a big upside. So that if a fighter, for example, says, hey, I want to make $20 million. Okay. You know, then we'll figure out what is a safe amount to guarantee him whether it's five or seven million, give him a big share of the upside. And if he's right that the fight will perform in a particular way, he'll make his money or maybe more. Like Marvin, who, who fought largely for the ups for the the uh, on percentage in the uh, his fight with Ray, uh, ended up making almost twice as much. Mm -hmm. So again, that's what we're going to have to convince fighters of the, 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 the current situation where fighters get huge guarantees on the pay-per-view and promoters have largely lost money, which had been the case prior, like, for example, uh, Al Heyman with PBC lost tons of money on Spence and Porter. Uh, lost tons of money in the Pacquiao fights that he put on. Why? 
They were successful promotions, but he, the guarantees were too high. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's there's no question about that. Do you the you said at the top of this this po- podcast that you're looking at June, you know, hopeful for June. Can you just tell me where you are with all that in terms of preparation? What is ESPN telling you about dates? What are the commissions that you've talked to telling you? Where, where are you logistically with with what you can do at this point? First of all, we're going to act responsibly. We're not cowboys like the UFC and Dana White. Not going to go ahead and say, I got to do the fight. And if people are going to get uh, sickened and so forth, not going to do that. We're going to do it with responsible medical authorities. And we're going to do it with responsible boxing commissions. Now we're working closely with the Nevada Commission, with the California Commission, where these people, uh, these commissions uh, have governors who are very, very, doing a very good job in the coronavirus. Governor Newsom in California, uh, Governor Sisolak uh, in Nevada. And we are setting forth how we can do these fights without audiences safely and sanely. And it, we, for example, uh, let's assume we do these fights in Nevada. Uh, we are sanitizing and sterilizing our gym so that fighters can work in the gym. Only those fighters who are tested and are corona-free, and we will quarantine them in a hotel because hotels are empty now in Vegas. They're beginning to open. Get a floor in the hotel, bring them in, uh, have them eat uh, in the restaurants at the hotel for two, three weeks, uh, test them once again before the event, test the referee, the officials, the announcers, the camera people, anybody in the room. We would do it in an empty ballroom that one of the hotels would give us for that purpose. Uh, And I think in that way, we could do fights, not jeopardizing anybody's uh, health and safety. Uh, And once that we can do that, and once uh, the commission signs off on that, then we can go to ESPN because they don't have other sports content, live content, and schedule these events maybe two or three times a week uh, so that we're able uh, to uh, uh, put on uh, as many of these events as possible during the summer before we can realistically open up these events and do them like before, before live audiences. Do your fighters understand the economics of fighting behind closed doors? Because I had Terrence Crawford on a few weeks back and he said, look, you want me to fight behind closed doors, you pay me more money, which you know obviously doesn't line up with the realities of the situation. Again, you know, some fighters have different views. And after we talk with them, if those views make it impossible to use them, Next man up. Nobody in this situation is indispensable. In other words, we have 
like 90 fighters that fight for us. Uh, there are a lot of fighters that fight uh, under Lou DeBella's promotion or, or Kathy Duva's. You know, the again, fighters I envisage will be fighting for a place on these cards. If a fighter said, no, I don't want to fight without an audience, you have to pay me more or I just don't fight, that's okay. I respect that. Next man up. Nobody is indispensable in this environment. Mm -hmm. Do you, when you negotiate these contracts, do you have to basically scale it differently knowing that that gate revenue is not going to come in? Of course. Of course. We will, you know, we, if we have a minimum, like one of our fighters and our fight in a contract, a minimum, but we've been paying two and three times the minimum in a lot of cases, you go back to the minimum and you, you work out the purse. Again, nobody can force any of them to fight and nobody can force a promoter to use them. We're going to have to use those fighters who are, uh, have managers and so forth who realize the situation that everybody is in. Do you, as a promoter, I mean, you are part of the Fury Wilder promotional team. You have Terrence Crawford. These guys draw significant crowds, significant gates. Um, are you optimistic that, you know, come the fall, that those types of events can be organized? Or is it going to be a case of, look, you either have to move your career forward or you have to wait for the 2021 maybe for top dollar? So take a Fury Wilder fight. There's a contract for a third fight. In the second fight, uh, the gate accounted for almost $17 million of the revenue. Now, if you do a fight without spectators, how do you, uh, how do you account for the $17 million? Obviously, you can't. It's not magic. Uh, so uh, I talked to Tyson uh, yesterday, no, Sunday. And, uh, uh, I, you know, he's, he's a very, very smart guy and is aware of the situation. And I said, Tyson, the earliest we're going to do anything with you and Wilder, you know, is November, November, December, you know, to get spectators and so forth. And he says, well, that's fine. You know, whatever, you know, is possible. He's, he's a very smart guys. And a lot of fighters are really smart guys realize that if they have to wait an extra month or so, not the end of the world. I mean, and I talked, uh, uh yesterday, uh, with Eddie Hearn and his people and, uh, Avalo and, uh, uh, John Wirt, uh, with the Pulev people, I'm part of the Pulev promotion. And we discussed that. And obviously, uh, they had to do the fight in June. We postponed it to July and we'll probably have to postpone it again because I don't see how we can do the fight or how it's feasible without an audience, right? Whether the audience is in the UK or the audience is some other place outside the UK. And also, 
there's a major problem in boxing that has to, once you solve all the testing and everything, there's a travel ban. So you can't really talk about bringing in fighters from the UK to the United States because they're not allowed here. You can't even talk about bringing in Canadians mm -hmm. like Rivas and Alvarez and Betabia who are in Canada and we would like to feature on these shows because there's a travel ban on the border between the United States and Canada. So all of that has to be sorted out. Now, Mexican fighters. We have Burchelt and Navaretti. I saw Oscar Valdez uh, talk about uh, uh, he, he can't wait to fight Burchelt, and I can't wait to see that fight. But can we get Burchelt into the United States? He has a visa, no problem. But there's a problem at the border because the border, in effect, is closed because of this coronavirus. All of that has to be worked out. And boxing does not rule the world. Boxing is not the, the driving force uh, in the dynamics today of dealing with the coronavirus. And we have to be aware of that situation. I talked today with Igis Klimas about uh, uh, the uh, uh, which of his fighters that we use all the time. Who are in the United who have gone home to Kazakhstan or the Ukraine? And he's making a list of all of them. For example, Kavaliskas, the welterweight, would be available. He's in the United States. Votsik, the light heavyweight, would be available. He's in the United States. But again, uh, uh, Lomachenko, as much as we want to use him, can't bring him over here because he's in the Ukraine. He went home, obviously, when this happened, to be with his family. You, you've been a, a global promoter, Bob, for your entire career. Do, do you look at, at this situation? Could we see big fights go to sites like the Middle East because the you know, if it's safer there if it's safe there, the site fee obviously accounts for a significant amount of money that that a gate might account for. Yeah, I mean, that's a possibility. They're on lockdown like we are. I mean, there's a travel ban in Dubai and Abu Dhabi in Saudi Arabia. Uh, again, yeah, but, uh, you know, Eddie Hearn showed with the uh, Joshua Ruiz second fight how lucrative it could be to do an event in Saudi Arabia. A mm. uh, couple of questions then, you, you know, Saudi Arabia is pretty much on lockdown now. Uh, but uh, also, you know, the price of oil is not that robust. And who knows if the Saudis uh, will come up with major money on fights. But there are a lot of places that would love to use uh, big boxing events. Uh, for Macau, for example, which is opening up and has tough, you know, it's tough for people uh, to... To, to get people coming to the events. They might be interested. Uh, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, who would have believed that we'd be in a situation like we are now with this coronavirus? Mm -hmm. It came, I mean, look how we can say lucky we were that we were able to get the uh, Fury Wilder fight in under the, the 
the band. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I was aware of this coronavirus before anybody else in boxing because we had an event scheduled for this island in China, Hunan Island, uh, that was going to take place uh, beginning of February for Chinese New Year. And uh, one of the fighters, Postel and Freddie Roach, were already over there. Uh, and uh, Ramirez was leaving that night uh, when we decided to pull the whole thing down when it looked like uh, this uh, coronavirus was spreading outside of Wuhan. Uh, and uh, and we stopped Ramirez from going and we brought Freddie and Postel back to the United States. So we were aware, we didn't realize that it would spread the way it did. You know, we're not scientists, but we were aware of this virus before anybody else in boxing. Mm-hmm. Well, your your mayor, Bob, sounds like she's ready to open up right now. Yeah. What? Your mayor, Carolyn Goodman, ready to open up right now. Well, Carolyn Goodman is Carolyn Goodman. She's a very <laughs> smart lady, but I think she drinks too much when she's <laughs> secluded. Hey, Bob, it's it's always great to talk to you. The stories are great, and uh, I'm hoping, like you are, boxing gets back as safely as possible. It will. It will. It will. And we'll remember. And, and people long after we're gone, we'll remember this period uh, and how we all conducted us. That's for sure. Like whether it's 9-11 or, I mean, there's a certain moments in time that you just won't forget. And this is, this is definitely one of them right now. Okay. Good talking to you. Take care, Bob. Keep well, keep safe. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs) Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count.